Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. You know, 100,000 sounds like a lot, but in a $100 trillion market, which is sort of the number you can think about for the next 20 some years of transition or energy revolution, which is really what we're going to go through. We've recently been told the the trillion dollar mark has been crossed by the climate finance sector, but it needs to quadruple according to the IEA per annum. So four, five trillion dollars or something or other per year for the next 20 years. Call that a hundred trillion. A hundred thousand companies achieving that, no way. There needs to be millions of companies. Hey everyone. Given the enormity of climate change and the unprecedented opportunity for innovation that comes with decarbonization, I love learning about ambitious efforts that really take seriously the speed and scale at which we need to invest in change. And so I've long been a fan of New Energy Nexus, an organization that aims to make clean energy accessible to all people by supporting 100,000 climate entrepreneurs. They take an ecosystem approach recognizing that entrepreneurs need not just cash, but supportive networks to succeed. And they've been building up ecosystems all over the world to support diverse entrepreneurs. I was thrilled to learn more about New Energy Nexus and one of their best-known accelerators, Third Derivative, which is a partnership with RMI. In this episode, you'll hear from Nexus's founder and CEO, Danny Kennedy, and Third Derivative co-founder and CMO, Elaine Shea. We talk about their backgrounds, the work that Nexus and Third Derivative are doing, their approach to ecosystem building, the importance of justice, equity, and inclusion in climate investing, underhyped and overhyped spaces in climate tech, and much more. Third Derivative is currently accepting applications through March 21st for its next two cohorts. So if you're a startup founder, consider putting in an application. For everyone else, hope you enjoy. Danny Elaine, welcome to Invested in Climate. So glad to have you both here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. I'm a fan of your podcast, so I'm excited to be here. All right. So we're mutual fans. I'm a big fan of your organizations and what you're doing. So thrilled to have this conversation with you. And I think we might be neighbors. I'm aware you once had an office in Oakland. Is that still open and home base for you or are you both working remotely? No, I'm here in 14th and Broadway, downtown Oakland right now. Yep. I still live and work in Oakland too. So hi, neighbor. All right. As I mentioned, I'm a big fan of your organizations and what you're doing. And so there's much that I'm excited to learn about today. Let's get started by just first setting the context of who you are, the organizations you're representing, and the roles that each of you play. Elaine, you want to kick us off? 
Sounds great. Thanks, Jason. I am a co-founder and now the head of marketing and growth at Third Derivative, which is a program of RMI, which was formerly known as Rocky Mountain Institute, which is an independent nonprofit focused on the global energy transition. And Third Derivative, or D3 for short, is a global startup accelerator that helps climate tech entrepreneurs find a faster, more reliable path to market through an integrative, collaborative ecosystem-oriented approach. Fantastic. Danny, what about you? I'm the chief energy officer of New Energy Nexus, so clearly not the executive. Like, I don't execute much. I run around trying to add energy to our organization, which is a global network of incubators, accelerators, and funds with a very similar mission to Third Derivative. In fact, we helped set up Third Derivative and partnered with RMI to build it. We do that around the world in a dozen countries. We run programs to support diverse entrepreneurs to drive innovation and build equity into the global clean economy. That's what I do on the daily. Very cool. Let's go deeper and learn a bit more because I think you've had a fascinating story in history and and the energy world. And then we'll circle back to Elaine since New Energy Nexus uh, um, has been a partner for Third Derivative. So Danny, let's hear your story. You've been in the space for a long time. Tell us about your path and how it led to creating New Energy Nexus. I'm old, I guess, so just one of those tales. I go back to the 20th century, and people are probably already zoning off. Um, (laughs) Was an activist in the 80s and 90s around atmospheric science stuff, ozone depletion originally, then climate change as it became known in the 90s, and did a lot of time with nonprofits, most notably Greenpeace. Ran a campaign here in the States in 2000, 2001 around financing solar, called the Vote Solar campaign that led to that really important organization in the policy world in the United States. We won the first $100 million public financing for solar and wind from the city of San Francisco and was working at Greenpeace, but realizing that the social movement needed more solutions than it needed to point out problems. And so I actually jumped ship in 2006 to become a full-time entrepreneur. I mean, weirdly, the activist skills translated pretty well. Started a company called Sungevity, which was one of the pioneers in rooftop solar in the world. We made something called remote solar design, ubiquitous. Everyone takes it for granted now, but at the time it was kind of one of those aha innovations, ingeniously combining Google Earth with the solar engineering requirements of the day, which were very expensive. Started some other companies in the space, was involved with Mosaic, doing solar financing, Sunergize, doing solar as a service in the Pacific, Powerhive, and also an incubator here in Oakland called Powerhouse with Emily Kirsch. Um, and sort of got in the business of starting up startups, basically, over the late noughts and, and early teens. And then in 2015, was recruited to run the California Clean Energy Fund, which is the precursor of New Energy Nexus. So I didn't so much start New Energy Nexus as help birth it out of this venerable organization in California that had been funding and, and supporting startups since 2004. So I took that on in 10 years, 12 years later. CalCEF is been amazing as an institution in the background of the California energy transition. I could tell you all sorts of stories about that. But we basically have tried to replicate the model of the ecosystem of support for startups that California has money, ideas, talent, and offtake demand sources in other markets that matter. And so now we're in China, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, countries that don't always get in the climate tech conversation but are critical to the climate outcome. And we do the same basic bag of tricks, which is training, funding, connecting to capital and other sources of support for these startups to succeed. That's the sort of trajectory. My personal piece of it is just 
you know, having the good fortune to work with 140 amazing people like Elaine all around the world who are doing this work day in, day out, um, supporting thousands of startups. Last year in 2022, we, we touched over a thousand entrepreneurs with these programs. Thanks, Danny. Elaine, over to you. Tell us a bit about your story and how it led to helping found Third Derivative. Yeah. So in early 2020, Danny and someone named John Kreitz, who created RMI's Breakthrough Technologies program and is now RMI's new CEO, approached me and several others who are representing different experiences as former investors and entrepreneurs and market experts across the climate tech industry about joining this founding team. And they were pitching us with this unique, vertically integrated, quote unquote, global climate tech accelerator program that was at the time still an idea in a PowerPoint deck form. I had a background in corporate innovation as related to tackling decarbonization, resilience, other climate initiatives. I had done quite a bit of work in technology and innovation and green building and utilities and a lot of other areas when there wasn't a lot of economic viability for a lot of these kinds of innovations to commercialize. And so I really wanted to be able to affect external outcomes in this way to change the paradigm of how investments were already going into solutions that weren't necessarily very impactful. So what RMI and New Energy Nexus recognized was that at the time, there was not a lot of good technical solutions for most of the critical emissions that were needed to be abated to fight climate change. While there were solutions that existed or worked, they weren't really economical compared to other alternatives. So we needed to drive and scale up more solutions with greater climate impact potential that had techno-economic viability, right? Especially in those harder to abate sectors like cement, steel, chemicals, shipping, aviation, et cetera. That's like two thirds of greenhouse gas emissions, right? None of that was really getting a lot of investment attention. And VCs were really good at investing in software, but climate tech is not all about lines of codes and bits and electrons. It's about hardware and hard science. It's about physical changes to systems and economies built on fossil fuels. You got to, you can't create a social, I mean, like you can create a social media app in isolation, but climate tech needs to be integrated with existing value chains and markets for all of these kinds of heavy industry infrastructure technologies, right? So the the challenge is that climate tech is generally seen as expensive. It requires patient capital. It entails technology risk. It requires industry partners, market understanding, et cetera, right? So that's why we built their derivative. There's a huge value proposition for why I wanted to join the team, right? You know, we we needed a new model for commercial commercialization of climate tech. We needed to help startups working on the world's most critical solutions, where we bring together an entire ecosystem of players in this sort of open collaborative approach. We wanted to help startups raise the funding and find the customers and the partners and tap just a strong network of experts, including all those energy and climate nerds at RMI. So that's why I joined. Fantastic. You know, this conversation is going to be a lot of fun as we bounce back and forth between New Energy Nexus's large scale approach and big picture view and third derivatives, more specific focus and one example of the type of work that New Energy Nexus does. Danny, let's go back to you and zoom out once again. Your organization aims to support 100,000 clean energy entrepreneurs. That's a really big number. Why such scale? Because the world has to make and remake 
the electricity grids and the mobility infrastructure and the transport and agricultural sectors of the world in an historically short period of time. It's all doable. You know, there are some unknown knowns that we need to fix for, which is where third derivative really comes in. Much of it is doing what we know, however, just at a speed and scale that we've never done it before, the deployment of solar and wind, storage, the electrification of mobility, households, buildings, etc. So we've got a big job to do in the next 20 years, and that's going to be done by small and medium enterprises growing large and a diverse group of them, not just unicorn tech bros, but a range of zebra companies, another word to describe the kinds of businesses that are going to actually do much of this work. You know, 100,000 sounds like a lot, but in a $100 trillion market, which is sort of the number you can think about for the next 20 some years of transition or energy revolution, which is really what we're going to go through. We've recently been told the the trillion dollar mark has been crossed by the climate finance sector, but it needs to quadruple according to the IEA per annum. So four, five trillion dollars or something or other per year for the next 20 years. Call that a hundred trillion. A hundred thousand companies achieving that, no way. There needs to be millions of companies and many of them will fail in the effort or last a few years and many of them will become huge and gigacorns and all that good stuff. Most of them will probably be million to $10 million revenue businesses. Some of them will be $100 businesses and that doesn't sound like a business to many listeners here, but in Africa where much of the world energy demand growth will be, the deployment of solar, wind and storage is going to be done by micro-enterprises dealing in 20 and $50 tickets. And so we, we really have to think creatively about what we need to support. And to buy more people in, we have to be open to the small businesses' success stories as well as, you know, it's the sole traders and the contractors that are going to be the heroes of this piece that put in the heat pumps and electrify everything and do the work as much as it is any single inventor of some particular mousetrap. We've got to think big and creatively, and and that challenges us as entrepreneur support people. How do you create those ecosystems that can go at that speed and scale and support diverse entrepreneurs in the thousands and tens of thousands? You know, we're on our own exponential curve as an industry trying to support this energy transition take place. But that's why we've got such a big, risky, audacious, but visionary and exponential goal. So think big, think creatively, but also think inclusively and really welcome the diversity that's needed for this transition. And Danny, it seems that the approach to scale that you're taking really involves launching country-level chapters and programs focused at the country level. So how does that work in practice? Are there efficiencies that you gain by working across countries like this? What insights are you able to gather through working in several countries in parallel? There are great insights, and I'll talk a bit about the synergies because you nailed it mostly, Jason, but I would say we're trying to do two things with the architecture of the Nexus. You know, Nexus is a network of networks, its own plural is the clever idea here. And we think we're doing that geographically, as you note, you know, specific to countries, because countries operate as unique policy settings and market forming entities with their own economies to place entrepreneur support into. The United States, for example, has, we think, three dozen entrepreneur support organizations for energy entrepreneurs across the country. But as well as the country-specific or geographic chapters that we're building, we do have some sort of vertical 
chapters that are focused on really important things like hard to abate technologies that third derivative is tackling through its very unique ecosystem building approach. We've had a historic 10 year program around just batteries, like trying to make the battery industry better, faster, cheaper, but also more just and inclusive because it's an extractive piece of the energy transition narrative that we have to confront upfront to get it right as we accelerate it through time. We've done a bunch of work on fintech. You know, it sounds kind of weird and a little bit adjacent to the clean energy transition, but really the deployment of solar, wind, batteries, all the things for the electrification of everything is a problem of finance. And one of the ways that we're going to solve that and make it faster is using financial technologies and apps for that. You know, the mobile money and payment technologies of the world are really helping speed, for example, solar adoption of solar lamps in Africa as a way to think about that vertical. So we have programs geographically and market-wise. What you asked was where are the synergies, and they are many. I mean, basically, part of the thesis of incubators and accelerators is you bring people together for what is called creative collisions. You try to create happy happenstance. You know this from your work, I'm sure, IDEO, that we can design moments of magic making where an entrepreneur in a building, in a co-working space, gets to meet their next angel investor in the elevator who's actually coming to see someone else. And truth be known, dirty little secret of our trade is sometimes it's that unintended stuff, the peer-to-peer piece that the entrepreneurs do for one another that is far more impactful than what the professional entrepreneur support organization brings to the table. So we do that at a global level. We bring players together in the building environment. You know, we've got Malaysian thermostat control companies in Manhattan because no one in New York's been bothering to innovate around boiler controls for a century in that dirty old town. But in Malaysia, they're just getting to grips with boiler controls and there's a smart kid with a better, you know, widget. We've done that with transmission companies from Australia to the States and India. Lots of stories of how we try to make that magic happen. Um, But that, we think, is the network effect, you know, and, and going back to the internet as a thought model it is Metcalfe's law. The the value of our network is the square of the nodes. How many of these cohorts of companies, how many of them can spark creativity amongst them to accelerate the rate of change? Danny, you operate programs in China, in India, Thailand, Vietnam, Nigeria, and elsewhere. I'm sure each program brought its own complexity, but tell us about some of the biggest challenges you've experienced in setting up a program in another country. What were some particularly difficult barriers and that you had to overcome? And what did you learn in the process? You know, many stories of setting up legal entities as a nonprofit from America in China, for example, or other things. One that came to mind with this question was, you know, the funding cycles for our work are really quite long. <laughs> Too much time between drinks, shall we say. So, for example, in Vietnam, we started the first and only energy innovation incubator program in the country and and you know Ho Chi Minh City is famous for its entrepreneurs right now and really cranking as an economy but there was nothing doing this work in the clean energy transition even though Vietnam itself has been doing some interesting things we got it going we've had great traction we were actually voted by the sort of shark tank type thing in Vietnam as like one of the top 10 most effective entrepreneur sport orgs in the country 
Our funding comes largely from a donor government that shall remain nameless because I don't want to tell this story and then sound like I'm dissing them because we're very grateful and, and happy for it. But, you know, the contract takes 18 months kind of thing. And so, you know, trying to keep a meaningful program rolling when you're going hand to mouth with the team of five or six or whatever you've got and more fun stuff might be, you know, just real life challenges, doing work in the setting up of businesses in the Philippines, for example, you know, we want to spark a solar rooftop revolution there. Guess what? There's only a few dozen solar companies in the Philippines. So lo and behold, you've got to train hundreds of electricians just to know what the technology is before you can sort of can spark an industry to grow and innovate around the opportunity in that particular market. Lots of stuff like that. Thanks, Danny. One of the best known programs that you've helped start is Third Derivative, a partnership with RMI. And so that brings us back to Elaine. Elaine, tell us more about what makes Third Derivative different and and really important in your view. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm really glad. I mean, I had talked a little bit about this previously in terms of the value proposition as to why I even wanted to join the team, because we were really filling a market failure gap, right? So I think the key was that we were born at a time when there wasn't much momentum behind climate tech as there is today. Thank goodness. The COP15 in Paris was seminal in changing that and quickly made it clear that the transition to a climate benign global economy was a multi-million or trillion dollar opportunity, right? So in fact, you know, Bloomberg New Energy Finance and Irina estimated that there we would need about three to four trillion. I mean, Danny rattled off all these stats. It was a huge opportunity in terms of clean technologies and the amount of investment that needed to go in per year until 2050, just to get to net zero carbon emissions. And the year-on-year revenue opportunities are similarly in the trillions. And so after Paris, with various countries and geographies taking leadership on their own, the right market conditions for climate tech were beginning to emerge. And there were problems on the supply side of climate tech innovation in particular that I sort of talked about previously. Like if you look at startups just generally that we need in climate tech, a lot of them are somewhat similar to biotech startups. So, you know, there's a lot of technical risk. There's capital intensity that's pretty high, especially in those early stages. At the time, horizon of development and commercialization is long compared to software startups and so on. And while the biotech startup ecosystem, which has like both public and private players, have developed and matured in response to these quirky characteristics, the climate tech ecosystem had not. And so we wanted to take that ecosystem-based approach, right? You need to have all the stakeholders at the table from the start. And we found that a very few investors had those deep pockets, the willingness to deep dive into the technical risk. They didn't have the comfort for the long time horizons. They needed a lot more support to be able to support these technologies themselves. And they needed to basically de-risk that whole system. And so there were a lot of potentially impactful startups that just needed that ecosystem approach. So to put this urgency in context, also the IEA estimated in 2019 that around 40% of the technologies that were critical to get net zero in the energy sector by 2050, mostly core hardware, you know, new electrochemistry, novel physics-based technologies, they were still in lab phase. We didn't have time. So, you know, there were all these other large emitting sectors beyond energy, like agriculture, you know, which is basically pretty slow to innovate, chronically lagged in productivity, emissions reductions, et cetera. So, 
you know, when you couple that with the fact that we need all this technology over the next decade, um, just to scale, we needed to do something more urgently. And so to get that faster climate tech innovation commercialization, we needed to kind of be able to create a new system. And so that's how we were uniquely formed in that we had this accelerator expertise from New Energy Nexus, but we also had this incredible techno-economic analysis shop through RMI, deep history, 40 plus years, Amory Levins, all of that. And we understood markets, regulatory policy, all of that stuff. And a lot of other programs just didn't have that level of expertise or this sort of small army of people that could help startups. And so that's what we did. We wanted to bring those VCs together, those commercial opportunities with the corporates, those mentors, those market experts. And when basically, as Danny indicated, when you bring all these kinds of stakeholders together, they start talking and the entrepreneurs feel less lonely, but also the corporates understand how to speak innovation a little bit better and understand the constraints and barriers to startups. The startups understand how to speak corporate better. The corporates start to talk to the investors to say, I'm interested in this. And the investor says, oh, if you're interested in that, then I have the capital to put in. So all of it starts to become this flywheel effect for the startup and the right things get invested in because they're the more critical things that are going to be impactful. And then they get to see the light of day and not fail like every other entrepreneur in the space. Third derivative now is just a little over two years old, and our ecosystem has, you know, over twenty VCs, CVCs, corporates. We also have over six hundred experts at RMI. We have one hundred twenty-five startups. We have over almost six hundred million in follow-on funding since they started our program in less than two years. That's it's insanity. There's so much good stuff happening because people understand that the level of diligence and the kind of system we've created is really uh, worth leaning in on, we are being impactful. 600 million in follow-on funding in two years really is insanity. And you work across so many spaces within climate tech, from buildings to energy finance to transportation. I'm curious what you think is overhyped and underhyped, where there's plenty of entrepreneurial energy or where there really needs to be a lot more. Overhyped is... Uh, American innovation, honestly. Uh, you know, we are good, but we're catching up. You know, we've had a Sputnik moment in the last couple of years where we're realizing that all this IP that we generated 20-some years ago has been bested by others. Um, underhyped is China and its huge role, not just in the deployment and the scaling of the manufacturing and the driving down of the cost of all the things, wind turbine components, solar panels, battery cells and packs, electric vehicles, hydrogen electrolyzers, all of it, they're crushing in the competition for first. Um, and that gets understated. And it's not just that they've put, you know, subsidy capital to work. They've done some of that, as are we with the IRA, now a little bit too late, perhaps. They've done R&D and they've done incredible work on the innovation of these technologies. And we underestimate that and don't tell that story enough. The other thing that I think is completely not thought through is where the effort is. You know, we've talked about we've put a lot of VC and other money into electricity company transformation, whereas that's pretty well in hand. You know, 85% of all new additions to the grid last year were solar and wind products. You know, there's no new coal, gas, oil being built except in, you know, corrupt corners of some countries we're not putting money into the hard to abate stuff that third derivative is championing. 
we're not putting enough into the countries where energy demand growth is. You know, Europe, the United States, Japan, these countries aren't growing emissions largely. There's bubbles post-COVID, whatever. But the U.S. has been declining since 2005. Where energy demand growth is, is Indonesia, the Philippines, Nigeria, Ethiopia, South Africa, these vast burgeoning populations that are coming up the energy consumption ladder. And if they do it with fossil fuels, it doesn't matter that California achieves 100% renewable by 2035 because the atmosphere is a global commons and, and that's the risk. So we underestimate and underemphasize by our actions, our deeds, as much as our words and our rhetoric, the emerging economies of the world. You know, I saw a figure in Bloomberg that less than 1% of all climate finance or renewable energy finance, I should say, was in Africa in 2022. That's just stupid. Like, you know, you can't have 54 countries with a billion people getting less than 1% of the world's effort. You know, this is why Cairo collapsed in a acrimonious claim of you're not taking care of the people that are being hurt first and worst by the climate change, nor those that need to drive and lead the climate solutions. I completely agree with Danny about geographic disparity in terms of how money is flowing, where entrepreneurs are getting support. This is the reason why we are a global accelerator program, where we are why New Energy Nexus is our sister organization in terms of founding. And I think the important aspect of, you know, the kind of ecosystem approach is that not all ecosystems <laughs> that are getting funded um, are distributed evenly. But I think to your point of like, what is over or under hyped? Generally, I think we need more entrepreneurial energy everywhere, as Danny is saying. The world is really lagging behind in terms of decarbonization targets we need to be hitting by 2030, especially in areas that are apart from electricity, as he noted. Having said that, there are a few areas that I actually see we'd, we'd really like more startups. We're looking at gigaton emissions reduction scale. And that is not just global gigaton, but rather also even regional gigaton emissions reductions. And so a couple areas, one is greener cement and concrete. So concrete and cement and more generally building materials are a really hard to abate sector. I mean, they're really lagging in terms of how we're seeing investments and how we're seeing commercialization. It's a pretty localized sector across the world. Cement and concrete are hard because they're actually such reliable, useful, low cost and well understood materials that it's really hard to find a perfect replacement for them. And it's challenging to clean them up as they are produced today. And so we're grateful that we have a couple of portfolio companies that are actually doing precisely that. And we'd love to see more entrepreneurs around the world addressing this sector. That's a massive investment opportunity. And we can do it in a way that's going to be economically viable. We've already found solutions that do this. Another area is critical materials. So many of the technologies we need for decarbonization, like solar, wind turbines, batteries, et cetera, they all need plenty of rare earth materials, or sorry, rare earth metals specifically, and even commodities like copper uh, that have been historically plentiful. We need to keep scaling new technologies in this area. The supply of these metals needs to be able to match the increasing demand. And we need technologies that can help us sustainably and cost-effectively harvest these materials from deposits that were historically difficult. We also need better and more cost-effective recycling to make sure that we are creating circularity 
and reintroducing used materials into the supply chain and not just creating new environmental problems. So those are the two areas that I see that are generally needing much more investment because those solutions exist. Thanks, Lloyd. It seems the commitment to climate justice and to equity and inclusion runs deep in your organizations. And you've described this partially in terms of, of the need to support entrepreneurs outside of the United States and in, in locations where they're often underserved. Tell us about how a justice lens informs your work. And also, does it ever come in tension with other goals? Absolutely. It comes in tension and it's really critical that we keep it up front and talk about it so that we can be anti-racist and and allies in a lot of ways that, you know, the energy industry hasn't historically always been. You know, we're talking about the transformation of the economy driven by the commanding heights, which is the energy systems we choose. And fossil fuels were necessarily cruel, I would say, and at the expense of people in place. And we have an option this century to rebuild something quite beautiful that's quite distributed in its architecture, derived from the sun largely and powering people's lives without these horrible impacts that we've seen over the last couple of centuries. But doing that right, and particularly in critical areas like critical minerals, the metals that Elaine was just speaking to, you know, is is a tension. You know, we're talking about needing more mines. Mines have historically been done at the expense of Indigenous communities, largely. The facts are something like 35% of the critical minerals, particularly lithium, lie on indigenous lands around the world. And we know we will have to do at least 100 more mines or something in that order, even if we got to full recycling and circularity of the economy to get enough of that metal into the system to store the electricity that we're going to run through wind and solar systems. How do we do that right? How do we include those communities? How do we build value for them? These are the things we struggle with. So for example, in California, where New Energy Nexus has been going longest. For over five years, we've been working heavily on the opportunity to derive lithium without a carbon footprint, pretty much, through the geothermal power sector in the state, which produces brines from the San Andreas Fault in Southern California and is a source of lithium. It's just now becoming commercial this year. But we've been working with the tribal community that owns much of that land in Imperial County, the Torres Martinez, they're called, or the Cahia Indians, where we're trying to engaged community folk to get some of the upside you know this is going to be huge they could produce some uh, some good chunk of the the batteries needed or the raw material for the batteries needed for america to electrify everything and achieve its 2035 objectives of an electric vehicle fleet made in america done right low carbon but you know who's going to get the jobs and more than the jobs who's going to create make the wealth and take the leadership of those companies and those opportunities is it going to be the same old same old or different and and we struggle with that we work on that we try to do equity in equity out as far as our solicitations goes and the startups we select and the way we support them in much more inclusive means than many programs would i think and always learning you know it's a journey but we're taking it very seriously Yeah, we see very interesting climate tech impact and financial opportunities come up from underrepresented and underserved geographies and founders all the time. And I have spoken about this in the past in terms of the ecosystem, right, which is that there are very specific innovation hubs around the world where investors dip into, but they don't really know people outside of those. And there need to be more platforms where people from areas of the world that are generally not known can bridge 
right? So, you know, I talk about funding and access are based on who you know and what they know. And if the people who have great solutions who are suffering from very local challenges that are actually global in terms of impact, like energy access, like, you know, transportation and cooling issues in India, like all those things, the entrepreneurs that are coming up with the best solutions that are the most affordable are in those regions. And they are coming up with really great solutions that are applicable to the world. And if you start to bridge those connections, you create that ecosystem kind of network efficiency, right? And you also are able to then create the dialogue between traditional pools of capital and support into these otherwise less supported communities. And that's really significant. In addition, who's on your staff? Are they representing that kind of group too? They're the ones making decisions. They're the ones recruiting startups. They're the ones, you know, bringing in the partners from their areas. They know their own ecosystem better than some person in California like me. And so I think the whole point here is that you've got to look at it at all the layers. What's the representation look like? Where are the areas of the world that are not getting funding, but having incredible solutions? Like we don't know what we don't know. So, you know, New Energy Nexus and RMI are really kind of trying to do as much as possible so that we can get maximum impact from everyone. Danny, Elaine, you've both been supporting climate founders at a time of incredible growth and interest and investment in climate tech. And the growth has been inspiring. And yet, by any measure of actual emissions reductions and deployment of climate tech, we know we have a long way to go. So I'm curious, how do you see the recent growth in climate investment and what staying power do you think it has, especially amidst an economic downturn and many other global challenges and investment opportunities commanding our attention? And so what signs or evidence do you see in terms of climate tech investments and interest continuing past this recent boom? This is not a fad. This is going to stick because there is no option. You know, as I said, 85% of all new additions to the electricity grids were wind and solar, electric mobility is eating the internal combustion engines lunch. There's no growth left in coal, oil, or gas. So investors now are spending more money in capex in renewable energy than fossil infrastructure. So the big end of town has come to the party, in other words, not quick enough and not enough yet. But the so-called boom is, is really just the tide of global capital siding with history that was created by entrepreneurs over the first two decades of the century. It'll wash over the rest of the century and we'll never look back. On my side, in terms of global investment opportunity for climate tech here, I have five reasons why they're staying power. So the first is the energy transition is the biggest investment opportunity in the world for the next 10 years. This means it's the biggest investment opportunity in human history. Uh, Bloomberg New Energy Foundation said, $755 billion was invested in the energy transition in 2021. To get to net zero, that needs to triple by 2025 and then double by 2030. And those numbers are probably understated. Number two, we need to follow the emissions. So mobility accounts for 15% of global emissions, but got nearly 50% of climate tech funding in 2022. In contrast, those hard to abate emission sectors, as I mentioned before, account for 34% of emissions and just got 9% of the funding. And agriculture, forestry, and other land use account for 22% of emissions, but only got 12% of funding. This is all PwC data. 
Three, we don't need to invent brand new things. We need to just get stuff out of the labs and into the markets. The IEA lists over 400 technologies that need to be dominant market leaders for the world to get to net zero. The trouble is that 60% of these are not yet commercially available. By 2050, half of our emissions reductions are likely to come from technologies that are only prototypes or demonstration projects today. Four, look beyond America and the rich world in general. 50% of energy transition investment in 2021 was in Asia. And Asia's energy consumption is set to double by 2050. By the end of the century, 13 of the world's biggest cities will be in Africa. This has major technology implications. It means that electric cars will be less important than electric bikes. Room air conditioners will be more important than heat pumps. And rice will matter more than corn. And finally, five, we need to think of climate tech expansively. RMI's co-founder, Amory Lovins, likes to say we're not going to solve climate change with a silver bullet. It's going to be silver buckshot. You manufacture building insulation, that's climate tech. You help reduce food waste, that's climate tech. You make transmission wires, you develop resilient crops, you reduce your building's energy bills, you run an urban delivery company. Basically, if you work on or in a sector responsible for major emissions and you do something about it, you're in climate tech. Awesome. Danny, Elaine, you both are sitting in really interesting places to observe the role of innovators and also full ecosystems of stakeholders in addressing climate change. And so please forgive this extremely broad question, but for us to meet the enormous and unique challenge we face today, what needs to change? So this is a really subjective question, and it's almost like a very philosophical one, but I was speaking with my colleague, Chetan Krishna in India, and I asked his opinion because he heads our research and diligence. And I thought, you know, he would really bring a good perspective given that he is in India and he is very global in his thinking. And he said that, and actually reflects my personal view, is that first, definitely we need massively scalable tech startups addressing hard problems, which, you know, is the kind of startups that D3 works with. But we also need a whole army of smaller scale localized innovators, similar to what Danny's talking about. These organizations may not be venture fundable companies necessarily, but we do need some kind of innovative finance for supporting sustainable, profitable small businesses, creating clever solutions in their own communities of reach, right? In addition to mitigation, which is where most of the investment is going, a lot of climate change adaptation is likely to happen through these types of smaller organizations, in my view. Second, I fundamentally think that policy is the biggest lever to affect change and create incentives for various stakeholders. I think we all have a responsibility to become more informed and engaged with policy change. And policymakers appreciate the benefit from input from those of us engaged in innovation support. On that same note, and this is a pretty personal view, I think we as a species do need to recognize that we have a responsibility to be stewards of the planet. I don't think I'm not preaching to the choir here, but it's a recognition that spurs action. The bad guys have got to get out of the way. We are still subsidizing fossil fuels to the tune of billions of dollars annually, like your money and mine as taxpayers all around the world, poorest countries in the world spending money on kerosene and and crap that's killing their kids and causing climate change. That nonsense and politics has to get 
on the good side of history. You know, we've pushed the rock up the hill and we've actually crossed the peak in terms of the technology transition. We're coming down the other side, but how quickly it rolls down and whether it, you know, gets a good path or a bad one is dependent on politics. And we need people of goodwill to band together and vote, make the right choices every time they confront, you know, an option to go electric or otherwise and get engaged in these climate solutions, which are being pioneered and led by these enterprises in their community, social enterprises, entrepreneurial businesses, but also get behind the electeds and the others that are, are driving it. It's a social movement that we're talking about, and we still have to win that fight. Danny, Elaine, thank you both so much. I imagine that our listeners understand now why I'm such a big fan of the work you're doing, and perhaps you have some new fans as well. For anyone listening that wants to be helpful to the work that you're doing, what can they do? We're both nonprofit organizations. I'm sure Elaine won't mind me saying that, you know, RMI has a great program for members and, and we do too. You can donate if, if folk want to do that. If you're more active and involved in, in the work of the energy transition, there's many ways to engage, contact us through the web, probably the Slack community that we maintain at New Energy Nexus's network has about 5,000 folk in it. A lot of third derivatives, entrepreneurs and mentors are very active and self-organized in there. You know, that's a great place to play basically and go and meet some of these people pioneering these changes and, and startups that we support all around the world. So at the newenergynexus.com, you can join our Slack and newsletter and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks. And for Third Derivative to learn more, go to third, so T-H-I-R-D dash derivative, D-E-R-I-V-A-T-I-V-E dot org. So you can look at the things that we publish. They're free, free insights, a ton of ecosystem spotlights, but also how to get involved. If you're an investor or you're a corporate partner or a, just a person who works at a company, there's a financial opportunity as well as an, a responsibility in this. And we want to be able to help you get involved, demystifying all these kinds of impactful technologies with access to our deal flow, but also access to information that will help you make more informed decisions and engage with the startups. If you are a person who just has great background in anything, any kind of skill that a startup would want, you can be a mentor. We are always looking at great people to help our startups. And obviously, if you're a startup, apply to our program. It's free. You get access to money. You don't have to take it. It's 18 months. It's non-competitive. I mean, there's no regrets. So please apply. We, we were built to support you. I'm sure there are other ways that you can get involved too. We turn away no one and we are very additional and we welcome everyone. Danny, Elaine, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for being here today. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for your work. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, Get in touch and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.